today I'm going to look at the idea of uh, stream entry. Uh, that's on page 32 of your text. But first I think it's important that we go through just briefly what we uh, looked at yesterday. And that is the, uh, the way the four noble truths describe a process. And the culmination of that process is in fact stream entry. So let's just have a look at that again. That the, um, the fully knowing of, of dukkha, in other words, this deep and um, extensive embrace of our existential condition, <clears throat> not just our own personally, but of everything that lives. And I think nowadays we need to expand that beyond what Buddhism traditionally calls sentient beings to the uh, biosphere as a whole. In other words, the environment that enables a sentient life to be possible. There's a famous discourse, which I haven't included here, which I should, uh, called the Fire Sermon. And there the Buddha says, um, the world is burning. The eyes are burning. The ears are burning. The nose, the tongue, the body, the mind are burning. Burning with what? Burning with the fires of greed, with the fires of hatred, and with the fires of bewilderment or confusion. Now, the Buddha's time, that would have been taken to refer very much to um, how we, as it were, destroy our own, our own well-being. Today, the text has a curious uh, relevance in that it, it, it has become literally true. The world is burning. The world is heating up. And the Buddha's analysis remains entirely uh, appropriate. The world is burning up with greed, with hatred, with confusion. We're destroying not just our own well-being, we're destroying potentially the possibility for life on earth at all. So, to say that we need to fully embrace dukkha can no longer be con uh, con uh, reduced to sentient life. The way we now understand our intimate interconnection with plants, with trees, with the whole extraordinarily complex web of relations that allow life to be possible, how we understand that our very bodies, our brains, have evolved out of these 
natural elements into extraordinarily complex configurations, that that whole system is now, as we know, under threat. And I think it's that this provides, I feel, a basis rooted very much in the first noble truth um, for what is otherwise called engaged Buddhism. See, I don't think engaged Buddhism has an adequate foundation if it's just about we should be more compassionate. We have, I think, to recognize that the very ground of Buddhist thought needs to be reconsidered. That we need to, I think, quite um, urgently get rid of this metaphysics of there being a separate mind inhabiting a body and then going on somewhere else. This, I feel, is almost morally irresponsible, apart from the fact that it's very difficult to make any coherent sense out of such a belief. Of course, it's consoling, but the implication is that even if the whole of the planet went up in nuclear holocaust or was contaminated beyond repair, all beings would anyway just get reborn somewhere else and start again. It undermines the level of commitment that uh, we, uh, we require, that our responsibility as living beings requires to address these uh, potentially uh, life-threatening, destructive situations that we have produced. I think another aspect of this fully knowing dukkha, and again, this is a very untraditional way of looking at it, is that it also opens up an aesthetic dimension. We may find this actually as something that happens when we meditate, particularly on a retreat, is that it's not only that the mind becomes more calm, we perhaps become a little bit clearer, that we maybe get a better understanding of ourselves, and in doing so that perhaps releases some of the self-centeredness that cuts us off from others. But also, when we go out into the garden, for example, the world appears that much more vivid and bright and radiant. There's a kind of uh, intensification of sensory experience. Whereas for much of our lives, unfortunately, tragically, we often live in a rather opaque, uh, unesthetic, one might, I might always, almost say anesthetic experience. The world appears listless, dull, boring, flat. We go out of the door in the morning and we go... Here we go again, more of this stuff, another day to get through. Everything doesn't, not, nothing really, um, uh, really evokes that sense we can have when the mind gets still and calm of what an extraordinary, weird and strange place it is in which we live. So... The, the embrace of dukkha, paradoxically, doesn't lead to 
a gloomy, morbid introspection. But actually, one, the more that we realize how fragile, how temporary our lives are, the more we rejoice in the fact that we can see, we can hear, we can smell, we can taste, we can touch, we can feel. It's an extraordinary gift that will, is here one moment and, as we know, could be gone the next. So I think a consequence of this kind of practice is also to an awaken, uh, awaken a sense of wonder, to awaken a sense of awe, which makes this world all the more extraordinary and precious. There's a beautiful passage in an Epicurean text that unfortunately I didn't write down when I read it, so I can't find it again. But Epicurus, or one of his followers, Epicurus was a Greek philosopher who lived about just under a hundred years after the Buddha. And um, he said, uh, imagine someone who had never actually experienced this world before, and they were suddenly to find themselves in it. That, he says, would be enough. You wouldn't need to seek some kind of mystical illumination of some higher reality. Just to, 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 to see and hear and smell and taste and feel what's happening now, if you'd never known that before, would be all you would ever have to aspire for. I think that's a very powerful statement. And although you don't find that kind of statement in Buddhism, because it is very tied to the Indian ascetic tradition, which tends to be rather world-denying. You even find passages where there's a, a certain disgust um, encouraged vis-à-vis -vis the world. In practice, when you do this, these exercises of mindfulness and so on, I do feel that that is what it evokes. I think Thich Nhat Hanh is quite good at communicating this sense. Uh, and and it, he's very much alone. I feel. Um, it's that Chinese sensibility. I feel that you find this very much in East Asian Buddhism, particularly in Zen. It's the only tradition that has really taken the arts seriously as an integral part of the practice of Zen itself. Zen means just med meditation. You get the haikus, you get the brush paintings, you get the gardens... Whereas the Indo-Tibetan traditions tend not to value um, artistic expression or practice as an integral part of one's dharma training. Yeah, exactly. It's all decorative. It's iconographic. It's um, the, the, and the same. It's iconographic. In other words, it's seen as somehow subservient to the um, uh, the practice of of the Dharma, but it's not a celebration of the sensual world itself. In fact, it's very abstract. It's, it's like Byzantine icons. Oh, they're very beautiful. But look at a Tibetan... Yeah, it's highly... Well, that is also unfortunately true with, with modern Zen painting too. That's why I raised the issue. Yeah, it seems to me the spectrum of 
Eastern mm. uh, Asian art, it's, it's somewhat freer than before. Oh, it's much, much. Well, it, it is. And I don't want to get into this now because we're running out of time and I haven't even got to begin the point I want to raise. <laughs> sorry, sorry. This has been another big diversion. But I think, to me, a very important one because the... I think an awful lot can be fleshed out in this idea of embracing dukkha. And again, I think it's also true if you, if you deepen your, your sense of your condition, you open your heart uh, empathetically to the suffering of others, you come to realize how extraordinary and beautiful this moment is, then craving is undermined. The, 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 the grasping at this, the getting rid of that, the, the, this repetitive wallowing in greed and attachment, as the Buddha calls it, this endless grasping after this and that, it no longer has any room. It becomes unnecessary. Its raison d'être is undermined. The whole exercise of craving re is realized to be absurd. It's pointless. It, won't, it's, it, it can never realize its goal. Now, when you see that, and I think all of us, I don't think this is such an enormously elevated insight, I think all of us have probably had moments where we know that to be true. And this comes back to the point that was raised, ye raised yesterday. It would take me so many lifetimes to master the Four Noble Truths. Nonsense. And this, again, I think where Zen comes in very well. We all have these experiences. We don't need to somehow endlessly defer to the higher authority of some Buddhist institution or teacher. I think religion, Buddhism included, tends over time to be disempowering. All of the power, all of the insight, all of the compassion is up there with the Lamas or the Roshis or the Ajans. We're just wallowing in the murk of Sangsara, and if we're lucky if we make a big enough donation to the monastery, maybe next life we'll get reborn as a, I don't know, as a, as a human being, maybe. A male human being. No, definitely. Yeah. A, 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 a bloke. Exactly. Not all this crap up to you. Okay, so I think you can get, I hope you're getting my point. The, 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 the embracing of dukkha is for me the very, very core of what this teaching is about. Because everything flows from that. Once you get that, you can see how craving begins to just no longer have any importance. Of course, it'll still keep bubbling up. And that, I think, is because it's so deeply seated and rooted in our, our neurobiology. But we don't take it seriously anymore. We might just think, oh no, here we go again. Hey ho, another attachment, another compulsion. Uh, da, 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 da. Yet, of course. But once this craving, once this habit of grasping and clutching begins to fall away in our lives, not just in some abstract sense, that, of course, will lead to moments or maybe sustained periods of time in which it's simply not active anymore. It stops. That's the third noble truth. And from the third truth, the stopping of craving, even for a moment, even really knowing that is the case, I am free. 
deep down not to grasp. That is what I feel is so uh, crucial to doing this kind of meditation, is to have the actual experience that you know, that you know, you see with your own eyes, you experience that I, I am free not to clutch. And so just in, any, in a sitting of meditation, you can find sometimes that stillness, that clarity, where all of one's habitual stuff is bubbling up, and you don't respond. You don't react. You don't let it carry you away. You just watch it come and go. That is the kind of freedom that is spoken of here, and that is a freedom that is accessible to all of us. And that's the freedom that frees us to enter the stream of the Eightfold Path. That's stream entry. And this, I'm being very, at least at this point, I'm being very orthodox. That is how stream entry is understood. As we, and I'll, go, I'll just go on to the text now. Um, if you go on to page 33, um, the Buddha says, he's speaking to Sariputta. He says, Sariputta, this is said, the stream, the stream. Now what Sariputta is the stream? This noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is the stream. That is appropriate. Seeing, thinking, speaking and so on. Sariputta, this is said, a stream enterer, a stream enterer, a sotapanna, a sotapanna. What now, Sariputta, is a stream enterer? One who possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is called a stream enterer. Now again, for many years, I didn't realize that that was what the Buddha said. I'd always thought that stream entry was a little bit more exotic. Not just entering the Eightfold Path, which, you know, some people might think of as a bit of a letdown. Oh, I thought I was already doing that. Uh-uh. Now this points, I think, very clearly to how um, this, what is you traditionally called the first uh, stage of awakening itself, is in fact the genuine entering of the stream, entering the Eightfold Path. And a stream entrant is someone who possesses the Eightfold Path, who owns the Eightfold Path. I need to look that word up in Pali to see exactly what it is. But again, it might sound a bit strange, as though the Eightfold Path could be a possession. But I think what it must mean is that at this point, the Eightfold Path is your own. It's your own way of life. It's your own process. It's not something you've heard about or something that you're sort of aspiring towards. It's now something that has become your own. In German, the word for authentic is eigentlich, which again suggests it being your own. Eigene. And so there's something, I think, implied here about authenticity. That at this point, when you really know for yourself that you are free not to crave, really know that, then your life, in a way, 
or the path at least, the Eightfold Path, becomes your own. It's not something that you have to constantly refer back to the instructions of some teacher to tell you what it is. It's your own thing. Go to the bottom of the page. There are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, my disciples clothed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in my teaching. They become independent of others. If you're independent of others in the Buddha's teaching, it means that you've made the Buddha's teaching your own. The Dharma has become your own. And that's what it means to enter the stream. Go back to the previous page. The longest sustained section in the Pali Canon um, about stream entry is uh, found in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And uh, there's a whole section called the Sotapati Sangyutta, Connected Discourses on Stream Entry. And so that I'm taking as to be the most authoritative source for what the term means. And it opens with a sequence of small discourses which all more or less say the same as the text I'm about to read out now. Monks, a noble disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. I'm going to leave the longer descriptions. What for? Here amongst a noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha. Next, he possesses confirmed confidence in the Dhamma. Next, he possesses confirmed confidence in the Sangha. And fourth, he possesses the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. Again, the same way of, same idea of possessing, owning, making that one's own. Now, Again, when I came across this passage, I was rather surprised because I'd always been told that stream entry had to do with letting go of three fetters, which you do find, and I've got that passage below. We'll look at that in a minute. But the way the Buddha predominantly describes stream entry is about uh, what we'd normally call taking refuge. And again, you might think, oh, wait a minute, I thought that was what I did when I joined the Buddhist club. <laughs> Which it is, that's what it's become. It's become, a, it's become a social ritual, and I think an important one. I wouldn't want on to diminish that. But it's very much been appropriated by the church, the institutions, and made into an entry ritual, like confirmation. See, I think... Buddhism and Christianity have so many parallels. Um, to enter in, we, we say to go to church, but the church really means the body of Christ, not some, some you know, moss-covered building at the corner of the street. Uh, and to, to join the community in the church is now seen to have to do with being baptized and having the catechism and then being uh, received into the church, which is fine. On a purely external social level, that has its place. But it's not at all 
what it means to participate in the body of Christ. That's another ball game altogether. It's very similar, in fact, to Shantideva's idea of everything being, all beings being part of a single body. It's exactly how, uh, in Christian tradition, being part of the body of Christ uh, means the same thing. You are, part, you are integral parts of a single body. You, re, you care for each other in the ways that the hands and the feet care for, care for, care for each other. They use exactly the same metaphors as Shantideva. So, like, likewise, taking refuge, in a superficial sense, means being accepted into a Buddhist church. And in some traditions, it means to be accepted as a student of a particular teacher. That, I think, is very questionable. Uh, that really reduces it. But to take refuge um, in the deeper sense, in the true sense, is equivalent to entering the stream. In other words, it's equivalent from going from the third noble truth to the fourth noble truth. In other words, we need to recognize that this taking refuge, or what the text says here, possessing confirmed confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, is not an external act, but it is a deep uh, turning about in the seat of your consciousness, your priorities in life. It's about commitment. It's about commitment um, in the sense of what it is that I now conceive my life to be about. It's about uh, recognizing and choosing to, to make one's priority in life the process of becoming awake of waking up, becoming like a Buddha, an awake one. That then takes priority over all other aspirations, to be famous, to have a good pension, to whatever it might be. But the, the core spiritual or religious uh, uh, sense you have is now uh, confirmed as this confidence that this is the way my life is going to be lived from now on. So it is very much a religious commitment. And it's not insignificant. It's something that if it's your own, if you possess it, it has to do with something that's actually happened to you. It's a bit like if you read accounts of Christian conversion experiences. They're being, as it were, uh, taken over by the grace of God. Buddhism uses a very different language. But I think the experience, subjectively, is probably quite similar. Now, this doesn't mean that it's sort of like Paul on the road to Damascus, blinding flash of light. That might be the case sometimes. But rather, it is probably going to be a gradual uh, uh, growth and, and movement away from certain other priorities. And increasingly coming to recognize that what matters most in the face of birth, sickness, aging, death is to live this life in a way in which I am optimally awake. That's taking refuge in the Buddha, which sounds a bit blah, but that's to possess confirmed confidence in the Buddha. 
confirmed confidence in the Dhamma um, is, I think, two, two things. First of all, it is a confidence in the teaching itself. And remember that the way I've been talking of the Dhamma is, in fact, about conditioned arising, which the Buddha regards as synonymous to the Dhamma, and the translation of that principle into the practice of the Four Noble Truths. So the, the confirmed confidence in the Dhamma is, in some sense, uh, committing oneself to the task of recognizing, performing, and accomplishing each of the Four Noble Truths. The, it's not that you just do that. You have a confidence that this is the way to be more awake. But you don't do this just on your own. You do this, and probably there may be some exceptions, but I suspect that it's not um, accidental that the Buddha then affirms that this practice is supported by a community, a Sangha. Now, Sangha doesn't mean, as it's sometimes used these days, as the monks and the nuns. I get very irritated, frankly, when I'm told um, we're now going to make an offering to the Sangha, when it means the bald-headed ones in yellow robes, or red robes, or black robes, or whatever. Unfortunately, that has become a, a, a completely uh, unquestioned usage of this term. And that, I think, has to go. When the Buddha describes the Sangha, in fact, there is a technical defin de definition here. That is the four, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. What this refers to is anyone who is a stream enterer or above, whether they are a monk or a lay person. He doesn't define the Sangha in terms of monastic ordination, in terms of priesthood. He defines it in terms of whether or not a person has entered the Eightfold Path. And as he says very clearly at the bottom of the page, there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women, lay followers, clothed in white, who have become independent in my t t teaching. Quite clear. He has the four types of disciple. Monks, nuns, laymen, laywomen. And all of them can become stream entrants and then you have this once-returner, non-returner, arhat, that frankly I'm not terribly interested. But the point really is that the Sangha is all of us who have made this kind of commitment. Now, um, again, one of the points that I made at the beginning is that I feel what's distinctive in the Buddha's teaching is that he encourages autonomy, self-reliance, and in fact this idea of becoming independent of others in the teaching, the idea that you go forth into the world for the welfare of the many and let no two of you follow the same path. How is that compatible, that kind of emphasis on individuality, and autonomy with having confirmed confidence in a community. Now, again, I think we have to think through a little bit more carefully by what a community is, particularly a community as opposed to a collective. Like you could say that Stalinist Russia 
was a very communal society. I don't think it was. I think it was, it was a collective where all individual aspirations had to be suppressed in the service of the greater good of the state. Ditto Hitler's Germany, ditto Kim Jong-il's North Korea. If you uh, express any view or voice of your own, then you're out. You're slung into the gulag or wherever. Now, I don't think that the Buddhist community's got anything to do with that at all. Nonetheless, you will find, unfortunately, uh, Buddhist institutions in which that kind of conformity is expected. You're expected to sing from the same hymn sheet. You're expected to ascribe to the same doctrines, the same dogmas. And there's very little wriggle room for individual expression. In fact, I would argue that for, for some of these groups, a free-thinking Buddhist is an oxymoron. There is no room for freedom of thought. Freedom of thought only so far as it leads you to the orthodox view. So community, therefore, as opposed to that kind of institutional collectivity, is um, a network of relationships within which each member supports the individuation of each other member of that community. We support each other not by trying to get everyone else to conform to the same ideas that we have, but we support them in becoming the kind of person, the kind of being that they have the potential to become. We saw in the, in the first day how the Buddha said that it is by your actions that you're a farmer, by your actions a priest, etc., etc. In other words, each person has the capacity to flourish and emerge in a distinctive way by the things that they think and say and do. A community that supports that is, I think, a genuine sangha. A community that doesn't is questionable. So I don't think there's any contradiction at all between the idea of individuation and the idea of being uh, rooted and grounded in a network of friendships, of relationships, in which we support one another to realize our capacity to be awake, to be committed, to be enlightened, or whatever. So let's have a look now at the more traditional account of stream entry, the one that you get almost invariably trotted out um, when you hear about this, say, particularly in the Theravada or Vipassana world. A stream entrant is someone who has lost three, three fetters have fallen away. Now, this is actually an idea that is very early in Buddhist tradition. You find it, as you can see from my reference, in the Sutta Nipata, Sutta Nipata, verse 231. It's a very early source. Now, what is it that falls away at stream entry? Well, there are three things. The first is called the view of individuality. 
which again, individuality is probably not the best term here. It's called Satkaya Ditti in, in Pali. Satkaya Ditti literally means the view of the whole body, strangely. The in word individual isn't there, but that's how it's usually interpreted. The second one is doubt, and the third one is whatever rules of virtuous conduct and vows there may be. That's the literal translation. Sila bata. Sila is morality. Bata means something like virtuous practices. Now this is almost invariably translated as attachment to rites and rituals. It's not what it means. It's not what it means. It's very disturbing what it means. It says sila bata. Then in later texts, this is in the, in the Sutta Nipata, you just have sila bata. In later texts, it becomes silabata paramasa, attachment to virtue and vows. But the earliest text just says virtues and vows. Now, if you go to um, another passage I've got here under the, I think it's under the Middle Way section, 31. Oh, it's quite close. Yeah, go to this passage on page 31 where the Buddha's describing the middle way. You get this expression, sila bhatta, again. Again, this is a passage that is rather shocking. What has been attained and what is still to be attained, both these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence or who hold virtue and vow, sila bhatta, pure livelihood, celibacy, and service as the essence, this is one dead end. Now the usual reaction is, wait a minute, I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. <laughs> and those with such theories and such views as there's nothing wrong in sensual desire, this is the second dead end. Both these dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow and the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and some go too far. Okay, now, again, this, is a, uh, this refers to what we saw in the first sermon, the first discourse, as, as the two extremes, which he, the Buddha speaks of sensory indulgence, or I translated it as infatuation, and mortification. And again, usually, mortification is described as, you know, these Indian ascetics who stare at the sun for hours on end or who stand on one leg for 25 years. But frankly, I don't think that's what we're likely to do once we get a little bit disillusioned with sensory indulgence. I've not had that experience. Now, I'm fed up with, you know, going and buying things and watching TV all the time. I think I'll go and stand on one leg for 15 years. It's unlikely that that will be your knee-jerk response. I think it's more likely, and in fact we see this a lot, is you'll swing around, you, you, you'll turn towards something religious or spiritual. And this, I think, is what the Buddha's actually pointing to here. That his middle way, at least according to this passage, seems to be a middle way between worldliness and religion. 
religion in the superficial sense, not religion in the deep sense that I spoke of it on the first day. In other words, rather than just indulging yourself, you start taking on board all of these restrictive activities. You get into dietary stuff. You get into um, this whole Protestant thing of, you know, no pain, no gain. That if you're not sort of suffering in your spiritual life, then you're probably not doing it right. And we all do this in subtle ways. We begin to think that by depriving myself of something, that is inherently good. And then you get the whole business of becoming a monk or a nun. And this, again, is very often about a certain form of self-mortification. You don't allow yourself any sexual expression. You only eat one meal a day, etc., etc., etc. Now, I'm not, I don't want to write that off because I've personally found that to be very valuable. But I think it's probably most valuable as a training over a finite period of time. I'm except in some cases, um, especially today, um, to make that into a lifelong endeavour, I think may not be really fulfilling. And in fact, virtually all of my colleagues and peers with whom I was a monk are no longer monks. Some have continued, but I wonder really whether that model is an appropriate one in this day and age. I feel that monasticism in the Buddha's time, um, was very much required more for social and economic reasons than it was for purely spiritual ones. Nowadays, in order to justify itself, you have this idea that you can't actually really be awakened or enlightened unless you're celibate, unless you really follow this strict set of rules and vows. And of course the Buddha encouraged that. Although he said towards the end of his life, he said uh, to Ananda, after I am gone, you can drop all the minor rules. Unfortunately, Ananda didn't ask which ones he had in mind. <laughs> and so the, 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 the Arhants at the first council said, well, in that case, we'll keep the lot. Typical sort of institutional response. Instead of being a little bit imaginative. Now, I do feel that probably what this passage is getting at is more, in fact, being attached to these things than the things in themselves. I don't think that pure life, livelihood, virtue and vow, service are intrinsically problematic. It's how we use them. But the text, nonetheless, does not say that. It says regarding them as the essence. Perhaps we can take that as meaning holding on to them as something, you know, irrevocable, essential, not to be disputed. We become attached to them. We identify with them rather than seeing them as a means to an end. And that's what has to be borne in mind. Do these practices, these vows, do they lead us to becoming more awake, more wise, more compassionate? Do they help us realize the core values of the tradition or not? If they don't, then we have to question their value. So going back to <clears throat> page 33, <clears throat> the person who, uh, who enters the stream, for whom the Eightfold Path becomes their own, it says that sila butter is abandoned. Virtues and vows are abandoned. 
It doesn't say rites and rituals, virtues and vows. How would you understand that? I would understand it as meaning that once the path becomes your own, once you have experienced for yourself that you are free not to crave, you become a moral and ethical free agent. You become, as it were, committed to morals and ethics in a situational sense. This is a term used in, in, in Christ, Christian uh, ethics, uh, what's called situational ethics. The, this is distinguished from what, 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 from what is called legalistic ethics. Legalistic ethics is basically the idea that there's some rule book in the sky, or written in the Vinaya, or on the Torah, which can tell you what to do in every situation in life. And that to be ethical or moral simply means to follow the rules. That's called a legalistic ethic. And it's very popular in religions, as you might have noticed. Um, it's all about commandments and doing what you're told to do. Now, that, I feel, is what is being dropped at this point. That you're free now not to live your moral life according to the, the rules of some religion. But you lead your moral life in your own lights. In other words, when confronted with a moral dilemma, you don't ask yourself, what is the right thing to do? You ask yourself, what is the wisest and most compassionate thing to do? I mean, take for example, uh, let's take for example, um, a woman who has, let's say, been raped, the birth of a child could potentially kill her, and you're asked as a Buddhist, should or not she have an abortion? Now, from a legalistic point of view, a Buddhist would say no, because abortion is murder. <clears throat> End of story. From a situational point of view, you would consider that unique pre predicament of that unique woman in her situation, and you'd ask yourself, what is the most compassionate response to this situation? What's the most loving thing to do? And it might well be that under these circumstances, the most loving thing to do would be to abort. Euthanasia. Again, Buddhists, according to the legalistic prescription, you know, no killing, first precept, would say, no, on, on principle, can't do it. But take a specific case, an actual human being who's very old and sick and miserable, who wants to die, like my mother. How do you deal with that? Do you just say, no, I'm a Buddhist, you can't do that, it's murder. That's the standard response. That's what most monks and authorities in Buddhism would say. And it's easy. It makes morality and ethics a piece of cake. You just have to say yes or no. But that, I feel, is completely inauthentic as a human being responding to the suffering of another human being. Each moral situation is unfortunately unrepeatable and unique. No amount of rules can um, 
can, can cater for the specificity of life's dilemmas. And you have to take a risk. So my understanding of this is that a stream entrant is someone who has the moral courage to take those risks. And of course, in taking a moral risk, you might get it wrong. There's no guarantee of outcome. Just because you're well-intentioned, there's no assurance that you'll make the right decision. But part of living um, according to the Eightfold Path, I would argue, is to have the confidence in your practice, in your commitments, in your values, to risk responding, to saying and doing what appears appropriate in the situation rather than what is right according to doctrines and rules. And that's scary. It's not easy. But I feel that this is very much the, what's going on here. Mahayana Buddhism, with its idea of the Bodhisattva, makes this completely explicit. Now, the Bodhisattva is actually um, a person who's considered um, mature enough and committed enough not to follow prescribed rules of ethics. But I think the, 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 the germ of that idea is already here in stream entry. Now the other two things that fall away, this Sakaya Ditti, uh, view of individuality is how K.R. Norman has translated it here. I think it might be better to render it as something like um, uh, you know, the, the conviction that I am a separate monad ego. Disconnected from my body, my mind, the world, I exist in and of myself. And that's, in a way, just a description of how the organism selfs. That's what we do. But what I think we can learn through the practice of mindfulness and awareness and so on, especially when we begin to go through the body, into the mind, noticing what's going on, as we already mentioned this yesterday, we find after a while, and we see it very clearly, that in spite of appearances, my conviction that I am a permanent me, there's no permanent me to be found. It's just, it's unfindable. There's just living, physical, emotional, mental processes rising and passing away. And I think when we really see that, and again, I feel this is probably central to the experience of letting go of craving, and the stopping of craving is that we relax or release at some level that conviction of being a solitary monad ego. And that, I think, is what is lost or falls away in these moments. Where there's a, a, instead of feeling tight and constricted around me, we feel open and responsive and transparent to the world. That might be another way of putting it. Which again, I think, is not a, an experience that's that alien to us. In our better moments, as we say, we do experience the fact that we can let go of that clutch, that grasp on me. Let's say, for example, 
in a situation where somebody comes to you in great pain, a friend or a client. And sometimes when you really embrace that person's condition wholeheartedly, you find yourself saying things and doing things that surprise you. You find that you're not just acting out of your preconceived notion of who you are, how clever, clever you are, and how much you really want to keep this person at bay a bit. But you give yourself to the other. And in doing so, you open what, what we would call, you open your heart. And there's a flow of responsiveness. That, I think, is when this view of individuality breaks down. So I don't think it's a high mystical kind of a experience. It's something we're probably all familiar with. And then doubt. Doubt here is understood really as um, an uncertainty about this commitment you've made. It's quite, I think, um, I think it's quite striking that doubt falls away at stream entry, and in its place you have confirmed confidence in the Buddha, confirmed confidence in the Dhamma, confirmed confidence in the Sangha. In other words, this doubt is a, a deep vacillation as to what your life is really about. A, a kind of a the crisis of meaninglessness in our society. The fact that our life is fragmented, unfocused. We have different roles, but we don't really cohere as an individual person. So doubt, I, don't, I think, does not mean uh, you know, no longer having doubts about certain Buddhist doctrines or theories, but rather it's about doubts as to what your life is for. And I think this meshes quite neatly with the other descriptions we get of stream entry. But to understand stream entry, I think you have to see these three fetters falling away which is basically a rather subjective way of understanding, a rather psychological description, in, in the light of the commitment to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. When you put those two together, I think you get a clear picture. And finally, I'd like to tell you the story of Sarakani the Sakya. That's on page 34. Now on that occasion, Sarakani the Sakya had died... And the Buddha had declared him to be a stream-enterer, no longer bound to the lower realms, which is one of the classic definitions. Thereupon, a number of Sakyans deplored this, and they said, Oh, wonderful, wonderful indeed, sir. Now, who won't be a stream-enterer when the Buddha has declared Sarakani to be a stream-enterer? Sarakani, the Sakyan, was too weak for the training. He drank intoxicating drink. He was the local drunk, pothead or whatever. This is an amazing story. And I, I'm, I'm actually amazed that this was not edited out of the canon, frankly. When this was reported to the Buddha, the Buddha said, if one speaking rightly were to say of anyone, he was a lay follower who had gone for refuge over a long time to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, in other words, a stream enterer, it is of Sarakani the Sakyan, one could say this. You could, one could rightly say this. Now this is, um, this is, is again, a, it's surprising. And the fact that it's somehow so out of sync with what we expect suggests from a 
historical critical perspective that it's probably an original text because it wouldn't have been in anybody's interest to add it later. The pa passages you have to be suspicious of are those that says, say, the Buddha um, has a body of golden, uh, pure golden light and radiates rainbow colors out of his ears. Then you can say, well, I think that seems to be a bit in the interests of the Buddha, of the Buddhists, you know, raising up the Buddha in this rather silly way. But when you get a passage like this, you have to think, and remember it was monks who remembered and, 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 and uh, uh, perpetuated, preserved this tradition. Then you find a passage like this. Now what this points to, in Christian terms, is basically the sinner. Sarakani the Saki was the le person you'd least expect to be a stream enterer. And yet the Buddha says, if you could say of anyone that he, it was a stream entry, it was that guy. So in other words, stream entry does not have to do with being a good, upright citizen. It, in fact, it, you know, this has to do with a person who's breaking the precepts all the time. But it has to do with the way in which your life is primarily committed. That's what makes the difference. And again, you have, um, I'll just do this next passage. This is Sutta Nipata, verse 230, which is in fact the verse that precedes the one we read just before. Those who understand clearly the noble truths, well taught by the one of deep wisdom, the Buddha, even though they are very negligent, with pamada, will not take an eighth existence. That's the classical way of describing stream entry. You only have seven more rebirths to go. But from a secular point of view, the point really is that even a, a person who clearly understands the noble truths, even though they are very negligent, is still a person who has entered the stream. And what that means is that they are a person who is part of the Sangha. Right? A stream entrant is a member of the Sangha thereby somebody worthy of, pay, of, of, paying, of taking refuge in, literally, of having confidence in. And yet, a person whose life may not exhibit all of the upright virtues that one might expect a good Buddhist to exhibit. So it points again very much to the fact that the core of stream entry has to do with a deep inner transformation of priorities and commitments and values, not with adhering to a certain set of outward conventions and behaviours. <coughs> so we'll stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate